goodness, your faithfulness to us. Now, God, as we look into your word, God, uh, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us, lead us, guide us, give me the words that you have given me that they would be uh, from you and not, not my own, that we would learn and be challenged and encouraged by your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you can relate to this or not, but I know for me as a follower, as a follower of Jesus, um, I don't, like I said, I don't know if you can relate to this, how, but how cruddy oftentimes that we feel when we're painfully aware uh, that we have once again failed to keep those sinful desires at bay. Have you ever felt that way before where you're just like, ugh? You know, you know you've blown it, you know you've fallen short, and you just go, ah, and you just feel cruddy about that. Um, and there's this, this grief and there's this sorrow that comes when we fall into, when we fall prey to things like our lust and our, our greed or coveting what other people have or pride or jealousy or misplaced anger. Should I go on? <laughs> things that I know that we all just feel like, ah, I fell into that again. When we feel like we know we've, like the official term for sin is really transgressing against God's desired way of living. We've missed the mark and we know it and we just feel this, we're just grieved over it. So the problem though that I, I know most followers of Jesus face is oftentimes is what do we do then with that grief? What do I do with that grief that I'm feeling over my sin? How, how, what do I let it, how do I let it go? How do I let it change me? What do I do with that? Because for many, the tendency is to really wallow or, or flounder in grief. If you find yourself doing that before, you're just feeling terrible about what you've done. But we hope that it will, as time goes by, it'll simply pass, right? We're hoping it'll just dissipate. And often it does. And we go back again and we feel that grief again over when we, when we blow it. Um, here's the deal. The problem is, though, that we were never meant to wallow or to flounder in our grief over our sin. That was never meant to be. For sure, it is right that we grieve over our sin because of what it does with our relationship with God and with other people and how it creates this distance often between us and God and others. So for sure, we are to grieve over our sin. Yet the grief we experience due to our sin really is meant to produce something extraordinarily positive. It really is. We are meant to be grieved over our sin, but it's meant to produce something positive, not just a, this prolonged period of just feeling really, really bad. Well, this morning, as we continue on in our study in the book of uh, Matthew here, we're going to look at two completely different responses to the grief that you and I experience when we sin, due to our sin and really the powerful realities that each one of these produces. Okay, each one of these two things, one of them produces something really, really positive, and the other one really is quite disastrous. And I think we're all going to be able to relate to experience probably both of these. So to bring us up to speed in our study in Matthew, remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus has been arrested and he's been brought before the high priest and the other religious leaders where they've been, what they've been trying to do, they've been trying to find enough evidence to lead to a conviction so they can have him killed. 
That's their, that's their desire here. They want something that's going to result in his death. And remember, eventually they find these two guys that accuse him of blasphemy or slandering or insulting God by claiming that he really is actually the highest authority next to God himself. So they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. That's what blasphemy is. That's insulting God. And according to the Old Testament, this is a crime that deserved the penalty of death. So they feel like they've got him. Okay, we've got him. So after coming to this conclusion, remember we saw that the religious leaders, they got this, they feel, okay, we got him. Then they just start beating on him. Remember, they start hitting him in the face and spitting on him. You know, it was a real nice, wonderful little trial that they had there. Okay, so now what we're coming to is the next morning. Okay, the passage we're coming to this morning, chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, this is the next day. So let's start, let's, let's start looking at that. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 27. If not, words will be up on the screen. Okay, let's look at the first two verses. He says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So here we have it. Already, they've already agreed uh, that Jesus deserves to be executed. Okay? The religious leaders now, what they need to do, they need to come up with this plan. They can't just go out and kill Jesus. They need to come up with a plan to get the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who really, he has alone has the power to order Jesus' execution. So they got to get him to agree with and, and to sanction, to enforce their verdict. Somehow they got to figure out how to convince him. Now, before Matthew describes this whole scene before, before Pilate, which actually we were going to look at today, this morning, it was going to be a long chunk, but I really felt like we needed to go kind of in a di- different direction. So before we look at all that, we, what he has to say about that, Matthew takes this little detour in order to return to this really a pivotal character that we've already looked at in this whole scenario, Judas. Okay, so he's going to take some time to return to Judas. Remember, Judas had led this mob to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was in order to identify him away from the crowds so there wouldn't be a scene and all that stuff. So he does that and he gets him there and orders so that people can arrest him. Now let's pick it up the story in verses, we're going to look at verses 3 through 10. He says, then when Judas, and notice how he describes him, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what does that to do with us? See to it, see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him to whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Okay. So here we see that Judas, he seems to realize, also, for some, somehow he's come to realize the magnitude of what he has set in motion. 
You know, it must have just hit him like a ton of bricks. He, I don't know why he wouldn't have thought this would have happened, but all of a sudden he's realizing the magnitude of this, and he seems to regret it. So what he wants to do, he tries to return the money to the religious leaders that they gave him in order to betray Jesus. Yet they've, they've got what they wanted. Okay, they, having achieved their desired outcome, they no longer want anything to do with Judas. Okay, they tell him, "You betrayed innocent blood, whatever. That's that's on you, buddy." They don't care about him at all anymore. So, most likely overcome by tremendous grief and sorrow and guilt, we see that what happens? Judas goes out and he kills himself. He hangs himself. Now. In their, this little section we looked at, the second section, in their, in their concern to maintain the purity of the temple treasury, remember these guys were always trying to do what was right and pure by obeying the law. They said, oh, we can't, we can't keep that money. That's, that's blood money. So instead of keeping Judas's money, they go and buy this field that's going to be designated for a barrier, burial place for strangers. And this seems really weird. Why is that even in there? Well, once again, as we've seen in Matthew time and time again, this all fits with the various scriptures in the Old Testament that foretell exactly what is going to happen to Jesus, how he's going to suffer, and how he's going to die. Remember, Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience here. So they get it. that When, he, when, when he's writing these things about Old Testament, these people know this stuff back and forth, backwards and forwards. So he knows what they're talking about. Now, Here's the thing that this does for me. Like I said, I thought we were going to spend a lot of time kind of going through the whole trial and all that stuff. But something hit me as I was studying this week, this question that presents itself. Now, if you don't have your little sheet of paper, you can get them. They're all over the place. If you want to take notes, that's what these little note things are in front of you. If you need more, raise your hand. Elias, one of our ushers right there, um, has some more of those he can give you. Just, just if you want to stay with me a little bit easier. Feel your eyes getting a little heavy because Rob's boring you. Maybe writing down will help out a little bit. Here's the never. Thank you. I feel better now. Now here's the question that hit me when I was doing this, and it's number one on your sheet. There is when comparing Judas's betrayal with Peter's, which is what we looked at. Remember, you looked at that in the last sermon where he denied that he even knew Jesus. Remember, how is it that one story ends in despair and suicide? And the other eventually in the full restoration of the future of a future leader of the church. Remember, these guys both failed miserably. They ultimately both betrayed Jesus. In both stories, there's colossal failure, followed by grief and sorrow and regret. Remember, we talked about how Peter, what happened? He went, he ran out from there and just sobbed and cried because of how he felt from betraying Jesus. Why then does one person's, why does one's grief seem to be absolutely unbearable while the other's grief seems to be bearable? What is it? Did one have a chemical imbalance or was one weaker than the other? What was it? Why did two colossal failures lead to completely different outcomes? Number two on your notes there. It has to do with the kind of grief each experiences, which is ultimately shown by how they respond to their grief, okay? It has to do with the kind of grief, grief they, they experience. Let me explain, and here's how I want to do this. 
I want to do this by explaining this, by looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, because I really think he shed some light on this whole thing. And my hope is that when we're done here, you're going to see the difference between the kinds of grief that we experience when we sin and how the responses can differ so much. So apparently Paul had written this letter. It's not in the Bible. He had written a letter to the church at Corinth where he had, he had to confront them on some certain sinful behavior. And what happened is that that confrontation led them to truly be grieved over their sin, okay? Which led to something very positive in their, a very positive result in their spiritual life. Let's look at it real quick. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look what, look what the Apostle Paul writes here. He said, for even if I made you grieve by my letter, I don't regret it. Now, he, didn't, he wasn't punking them. He wasn't trying to rip on them or make them, feel, but make them feel bad. He was just confronting them lovingly on some sinful behavior in their life. He says, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while. So he's bummed that they were grieved, but he saw that it was okay. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly relief, a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So see, after they had been confronted by something they'd been doing that was just totally missing the mark on how God wanted them to live, the Corinthians not only were grieved, or really what, the, what this word means, that they were quite literally in pain. They were hurting bad over what had happened, what they were realized, oh my gosh, we really have missed the mark. But what happens is that grief and that pain led them to do something very, very powerful. And Nelson even mentioned this last week in last week's sermon that, the, that the, Jesus wrote this letter to the church in Pergamum, and he told them that they had to do. They were doing great, remember? They were doing really well living in a situation that was really difficult, but he said there were still some things that they weren't doing right, so he said they needed to what? Repent. He said, you need to repent. Number three on your notes, to repent literally means to change one's mind. It means to change one's mind. It's, it's more than being sorry for our sin, but actually changing our mind about how we view our sin in such a way that we act and we think in new ways that honor God. So that's a lot more than just feeling cruddy, right? That's a lot more than just going, oh, crud, I blew it. I, uh, just feeling bad. There's a whole lot more to it. It's a change of our mind and how we actually see that sin, okay? And it's going to change the way we act and think. Now, and why did they respond by, by repenting of or of changing the way they viewed their sin? Paul tells us here, it's because the grief that they experienced was godly grief, okay? It wasn't simply worldly grief. There's a big difference, and Paul really wants us to understand this, and it really makes sense for how these two guys responded to their grief, Peter and Judas, there's a big difference. Number four on yours. Whereas godly grief produces repentance, worldly grief, according to Paul, produces not feeling good. No. Death. 
He says it produces. I mean, that's huge. That is huge to think about how just simply feeling cruddy or feeling bad about over our sin doesn't just produce bad feelings. It produces death. Because simply feeling bad about my sin doesn't produce anything except feeling bad, right? I just feel bad. If I feel just, if that's where I'm going to leave it, that's all it's going to, that's where it's going to stay. And I'm going to wall, have you ever had that before where you know you've missed the mark? You know you've displeased God. You know you've fallen short in your walk with God. And there's this just constant grinding of, oh, I just feel terrible. And it just stays there. That is what Paul is saying is worldly grief. Okay? When I simply feel bad about my sin, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get into this vicious cycle of wallowing in it and self-pity and sorrow and guilt and shame and regret. And this is where, my friends, this is where a lot of times a lot of us medicate. This is where we medicate that. Remember, we're feeling guilty. We're feeling horrible. How do I stop feeling horrible? And some of us, sometimes we've gone to some of the things that just, I just don't want to feel bad anymore. So we medicate it in some way. You see how this trail to death, you see how it goes? We weren't meant to get to a place where we feel we have to medicate our our pain with drugs, alcohol, pornography, shopping, whatever it is. Because that is the direction of death is what he's saying. It's for, for it's this separation. It's this experiencing spiritual death, a separation between God and I. I don't know about you, but when I feel terrible, when I feel guilty, when I feel shame, it's hard for me to feel connected to God, right? It's almost like I want to say, I'll come back to you, God, when I'm feeling better. You know, well, we'll get back to this relationship thing. We'll get back to this intimacy thing. Once I've kind of worked through this and there's been some time between my mess up, I've been there many, many times. Number five on your notes. The truth is that worldly grief is self-centered grief. It's concerned more with punishment or consequences. On the other hand, godly grief is concerned more with the willingness to change our thinking and our actions. If I feel terrible about what I did and that's all I do, Sure, I might want to change my actions because I don't want to feel terrible again, but that's not going to be enough motivation to do it. I've got to come to the place where I'm willing to say, I want to change the way in the recovery world they say, I want to change my stinking thinking. I want to change the way that I think. I want to change the way that I respond to things in my brain. And I want to change the way that I act. So how do we do that? How do we come to having godly grief as a result of our sin and not worldly grief? Is there a switch? Is there a, I mean, what do I do? Number six, our ability to be able to choose between godly and worldly grief when we sin gets down to how we view God. The ability to be able to figure out, am I going to have godly grief? that's going to lead me to this repentance, is going to lead me to a change of mind and to a change of action? Or am I going to get stuck 
How do I do that? It all gets down to how we view God. You see, if, we see, if you see God as a distant or authoritarian or a critical God, when we sin, we'll more often than not end up staying stuck and wallowing in our grief. Does that make sense? If he's distant, if he's not really involved in my life, if he's not caring, if he's just kind of, we see him up there waiting to, as soon as you mess up, I want to whack you. If we see him that way, of course we're going to wallow in our sin or in our guilt and the shame. Of course we're going to end up medicating. Why did I do that? Why am I doing these things? It's because we don't understand. We have a view of God that is incorrect. Whereas if we see God as this intimate and this approachable, gracious and forgiving and kind, if we see God that way, when we do sin, when we do mess up, we will more often than not be prone to experience godly grief. Does that, see how that makes sense? If we see God as good and kind and we go, oh God, I'm so, this, I can't believe I did that. But I know you love me. I know you're kind. I know your patience is long-suffering. I know that about you. I want to change. I want to turn. I want to go from, from going this way to this way. See how that works? Remember the, the church in Rome and this whole idea of how we see God? To the church in Rome, the apostle Paul wrote this. He said, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not really realizing that God's kindness is intended to do what? His kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Not our how much we figured out how bad we did when I crossed the line. Okay, now I've done really bad. No, it's remembering how kind and how wonderful, how the God of the universe looks at me and adores me. Not because of what I do or don't do, but because of what Jesus has done for me and that I belong to him. That's how we don't get stuck in that, what, in that grief. What determines whether you experience godly or worldly grief comes down to how you view God. That's a whole other sermon. That's a whole other thing. That's why it's so important that we're in his word, that we're spending time with people that are speaking into our lives, all these things. It's so important not to be guilty, not to check it off our list. Oh, I, was, I read my Bible or I, or I talked to God. No, it's so we can have. I, I, if I didn't spend time with my wife, I'd be assuming all sorts of things. What does she think about this? What? No, I need to spend time with her. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Those of you who didn't hear that, she said that's right. <laughs> I agree, babe. Okay, so here's another question I've got. So another question is, what should godly grief that leads to repentance then look like? Okay, what should it specifically look like? Let's look back to that, that verse in 2 Corinthians. Let's look at the next verse where he goes now. Look back at how he describes the Corinthians, how their godly grief. Here's he says what it does. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 says this. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. Paul's saying that their godly grief did an amazing thing to them. It caused in them this deep desire to be 
clear of the sin, to put it in their past, to forget about it, say, I don't want to ever go there again. They were enraged about their sin. They were alarmed about the depth of their sin, and they longed to do everything possible to make it right. They wanted to completely distance themselves. And Paul saw this, and that was because they had godly grief. You see, godly grief is to be genuinely sorry for our sin. Not because we got caught, not because it makes us feel terrible, but sorry that we did what we did. Because we know that it hurts our relationship with God. We know that it hurts our relationships with other people, so I'm sorry. That's not who I want to be. And that's what he's saying is is the difference here. The simple truth is number seven on your notes. The more we come, and I've said this before, the more we come to hate sin, the more inclined we will be to run from it. And this took me decades to learn this in my own life. Decades. I didn't want to do a sin, but I needed to learn to hate it, to abhor it, to be disgusted by it. That's what helps us to be able to say, I'm out of here. I'm running from that. And when we're tempted by it, if we know that we loathe it, it's disgusting, we hate it so much, when we're tempted by it, it'll be a lot easier to turn away from it. Does that make sense? When you hate something, you're disgusted by it, it stinks if it's horrible, you do everything you can to stay away from it. That's the attitude we have to have towards our sin. Think about what it is in your life that you struggle with, where you feel like you constantly fall short, and you know that it's not how you want to live your life, how God wants you to live your life. That thing you're thinking about right now, the best thing you could do is to learn to hate it. Yes, I said hate in church. Hate it. Despise it. Want anything to do with it. It makes you sick when you think about it. As we get to that point, and ask God to help you, God, believe it or not, God will help you to hate. Whoa. But he will help you to hate something that he hates, and that is sin and rebellion, because he knows that it breaks our relationship with him, and it breaks our relationship with other people, and it makes our lives miserable. Not because he wants us to just act a certain way. He's a good, good God. Number eight here, the difference between godly and worldly grief, according to Pastor Kevin DeYoung, which I found this as one mobilizes you into action and the other immobilizes you. I had to put that in there because when I read that quote, I thought that is so true. One mobilizes you. One is meant to spur us on to action, to turn from sin towards Christ and obedience. The other just makes us idle and stagnant. No change, no growth, just sitting in my guilt, sitting in my shame. See how that works? One motivates us. It it mobilizes us to go. I got to change here. And the problem is, though, ultimately, the truth be told, I think that some of us would rather wallow in our self-pity, in our guilt, in our shame and regret. You're thinking, I would never want to do that. But the reality is, it's a whole lot easier to do that than to change. A lot of us don't like change. Even when we know we have to. Even when we know it would be so hard to do that. So you know what? I think I'd rather... We've seen people... Some of us in our own lives, we've seen it in our own lives, that stinking thinking or that actions. You look at someone's life and you go, why do you keep doing that? Because it's a lot easier to keep doing it. 
even though the consequences are huge. Changing is hard. Changing takes effort. Changing can hurt. Changing is uncomfortable. So a lot of times we stay and we say, I'll experience, no thank you, I'll take the worldly grief. Doesn't that just sound insane? But I get it. It's who we are. It's how our sin nature works. You see, the grief that Peter experienced from denying Jesus three times, we see that it was a godly grief because what we, and we will see as we, go, as we go on in the next couple of weeks, we'll see that it leads him to respond ultimately to going to Jesus in repentance. Remember the scene? We're going to look at it. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I know. I, yes, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love so basically, he's coming back to Jesus saying, I know you love me. I know I blew it. Okay? We're going to see that. And through his actions, we're going to see all this stuff. Which in turn allows him to experience full restoration and to be used in building the kingdom of God and become a pillar of the church to help get the church really going. Judas, on the other hand, he was sorry. Yes, he was sorry. He was sorry that he betrayed Christ, but he never understood really who Jesus was. He only experienced worldly grief. With what that did is ultimately led him to respond by going to who for forgiveness? Who did Judas go to for forgiveness? The religious leaders. I'm sorry. I blew it. I need your, basically what he was saying is, I need your forgiveness. I need you to tell me that what I did was bad and wrong and that I'm okay. They could never do that. That's impossible. The religious leaders could never have done that. There's no way they would, they would have done that. He needed restoration and they couldn't give it to him. So it left him wallowing in his guilt, in his shame, to ultimately taking his life. And that's not so far off, I think, than the real world where we know that people have taken their lives because of the guilt and shame and grief they're experiencing for all sorts of different reasons. Okay? The difference between godly grief and worldly grief is ultimately a life and death issue. Godly grief produces repentance because it leads us to the only one who can ultimately provide complete forgiveness and restoration. Godly grief leads us to Jesus. We run to Jesus when we have godly grief. Worldly grief typically leads us to look to other people or certain ways or uh, ways to find forgiveness and restoration. Even for ourselves, if I could just, you hear this in the world all the time, if you just forgive yourself, you just need to forgive yourself. True. But it has to go a step further. It always falls short of what we ultimately need. Number nine, repentance can actually be characterized by three things. I want to blitz through this real quicker because I still want to have some time to ask you guys some questions. It can, can be characterized by three, three things. The first is this. The first thing that characterizes repentance is an understanding of the seriousness of sin. And I think this is where we mess up so often. We do not realize how serious sin is. Remember Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is uh, not getting lunch. No. You can't come to our potluck. No. No. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God. You know, that's what's going to happen. That's what you're going to experience. Repentance is understand that only thing that will, we, I ultimately deserve for breaking God's laws is death. Do you believe that? Do we really believe 
that our sin, even the smallest sin, there's no measurement here, do we believe that our sin deserves death? Do we believe that it deserves God saying, no way, I'm not having anything to do with that, that person because I am completely amazingly holy and they are not. That's what we deserve. <laughs> but because of his grace, we don't get that. Okay? For the unbeliever, the, the price is eternal separation from God and all that is good forever and more. For the follower of Jesus, it's a form of spiritual numbness and being easily receptive to um, deception and to deceit. And I was listening to a, a song, a <laughs> side note here, I, I was in an 80s Christian rock mode the other day for some reason. Anybody remember DeGarmo and Key? Remember that? Anybody remember that band? Had this, and everything I listened to, now you listen to it, I go, wow, that is so cheesy. But I'm listening to it, and they had a song that called, I Don't Want to Be a Casual Christian. And I was listening to this song, and I'm going, this is so cheesy, but this is so true. That is so what I want. Because I don't want to be the kind of Christian who says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, yet I'm living in deception. I'm being deceived constantly, not in a, even in a way that I see, but I think it's okay to, to, to snuggle up to this little sin. It's not a big one. It's no big deal. It's not hurting anybody, for crying out loud. But we snuggle up to it. And we don't realize that we're being deceived into going down a road of death, of spiritual numbness. Why is reading the Bible so boring? Why don't I, why don't I ever have the courage to share Christ with my friends, stand up for my faith? Because we're being deceived. And it all begins by not seeing how serious and hating our sin. Second thing repentance is characterized is by a longing to be forgiven in order to experience the fullness of God. Look what David, I love David, has some great prayers. The men's Bible study, we've been looking at David in Psalm 119. It's been amazing for me. But look at what David said when he realized the gravity of sin that he had, when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, he, Bathsheba. he said this in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, not only did David desire, deeply desire mercy and compassion from God, he longed to have a clean heart and a steadfast, loyal, single-minded desire for God. He wanted everything stripped away, everything that gets in the way. Strip it away. I need a new heart, and only you can give it to me. I need to forgive, ask forgiveness of other people. I need to forgive myself. But only you can give me true restoration. And he knew that. Number 11. We're almost done here. Third thing repentance is characterized by is a decisive commitment to change behavior and thoughts in order to stop sinning. We've already, kind of, we've already hit on this. A decisive commitment to change behavior and thoughts in order to, commit, uh, to stop sinning. Colossians 3 says this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Look, I love that. He doesn't say, don't look at it. Stay away from it. Walk away. Put it to death. Hate it. Be disgusted by it. True repentance means recognizing that overcoming sin requires ongoing effort. 
Yet not the kind of effort that says, I'm going to try to be good. I'm just going to try to do better and not do that next time. Or having the willpower to stop sinning. Or even getting other people to forgive us. Or to even forgive ourselves. That's not the effort that needs to go in. The effort is this ongoing effort in deepening our intimacy with Jesus. And our propensity to, and a propensity to run to him when we fail. I don't know about you, that's not my knee-jerk reaction when I fail, is to run to Jesus. But as our intimacy with Jesus grows, our propensity to say, oh, I need you, Daddy. I need you. We were watching our grandson this weekend, and, and the kid just adores me. He, <laughs> I don't know why. He just... but. I can tell when he needs something or wants, he will just cling to me and run to And it's just like, oh my gosh, he wants me to love him. He wants it so bad. And that's what, it, that's what we need to get to that place. That intimacy with God so we can have, not only to have the power to overcome our sin and a source of restoration and forgiveness, that's what we need the most. We need not only forgiveness, we need restoration. We need to be in a place where it's like, okay, I blew it. I'm okay. I'm, I ran to Jesus. That's what godly grief produces. A couple questions that I want us to talk about. Why is it, why is it sometimes easier to wallow in grief over our sin than to allow change? What do you think? Remember, this is the participatory last few minutes of our time together. Why do you think? Why is it sometimes easier to just wallow in it? Yeah. Totally. Yep. Good one. And it takes effort. Yes. It takes, yes. Yes. So good. That's uh, so good, Maria. Yeah. Because the world tells us, just pull yourself up by your drew steps. Do better. I can't do better. I can't. <laughs> I'm broken. I'm broken. Yeah, that's so good. Anything, anything else? Yeah. Yeah. It can, be, it can be really comfortable, huh? Yep. Especially for those of us that are guilt-ridden. You know what? Oftentimes, we feel we deserve it, right? Look what I did. I deserve to feel like crud. That's that's what we tell ourselves. That's the message that we have. Of course, I deserve. That's my biggest one. If I blow it, I know I deserve to feel bad. That's my, my tell myself. You deserve to feel horrible. God's saying, no, 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 no. Yeah, Buck. It's just a little sin. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So true. Yep. Okay, second question. Why are we tempted to look to others or ourselves to provide forgiveness and restoration and ultimately relief from our guilt, shame, and regret instead of Jesus? Why do we run to these other things so much and so fast and so easily instead of running to Jesus? Kind of in the same vein there. Well, that's what I wrote in my notes. For me, I don't really believe he will. I, I just... I don't really, sometimes the reality is if I'm not running to him, I'm really not believing that he is who he said he is. That's where I got to change. Anything else? Yes. Some of the other things are kind of like a band-aid for cancer. You know, just a quick fix. Right. Yeah. 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 Great, Dave. Yeah, for sure. 
All right, number three. Can anyone think of a time when godly grief led to true repentance in your life or the life of someone you know? And I, let's just go with the someone you know, okay? That's it. <laughs> Where you saw that godly grief led to, oh my gosh, re- totally, I see that, and repentance, restoration, um, and really that was a good, that, that worked out really well. Come on, we all have a friend that this happened to. That's great. <laughs> She's a dog, Dave. No. <laughs> no, that's great. That's a... Yep. That's such a great illustration. My last, also from my, my last church that I was involved in for almost 30 years over in Foster City, um, they had a really powerful ministry that completely impacted the whole church, and it was a recovery ministry where people, addicts from all walks of life would come. And I got to tell you, I learned a good, le- I learned a powerful lesson from, from addicts who came to Christ. I've never met people in my life who s- realized how desperately they need Jesus, as the bumper sticker says, one day at a time. They just saw that, I, I, I can't the 12-step program I'm in, NAAA, whatever, that's all good. I need that. But man, even more than that, I need Jesus. I need him bad. And they, it, empowered, it, it impacted my life so huge because they were so aware of their brokenness because it had impacted their lives such horrific ways. We need to think that way about our own sin. We need to see, every one of us needs to see ourselves as in recovery to some degree, because we are, and we need to be. Last question, just real briefly. What are some things that we can do to ensure that the grief we experience over our sin and failure will be godly and not worldly? It's kind of like we've been talking about this all, but anything just practically you can think of that... Yes? Be transparent. Be tra- oh, that's a great one. Be transparent with others, with God, with... yeah. For sure, 100%. It's great. Yes, Maria. Aware of ourself and aware of remembering how God sees me. How do you see me, God? Here's how I'm seeing me myself right now. I need to stop. How do you see me? It's hard work, isn't it? But it pays off. It's so good because we have the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that and to really be successful in that. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it it convicts us, but it encourages us as well as it and it shows us how we are to live. I want to pray for myself and all my friends here that you would help us, God, to truly experience 
godly grief when we sin, because we will, probably today, many times. But God, that we would hate that sin, we would be long to run to you so that we can receive restoration, forgiveness, and to be used by you in ways that we never imagined because of your incredible goodness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion.